What are you drinking? Gin and tonic. Mm. It's much better than Irish coffee. I went like after having hot alcohol, I now went the route of taking like very cold alcohol. What a weird life choice. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I wanted a coffee and I, I wanted like I wanted to make it exciting. I made it terrible. Like never again. Never again an Irish coffee. It's not a good idea. Um, I went to my, my local coffee shop, the one where they sometimes know what my order is and it makes me feel like I have a home um, the other day and I, I ordered something. But I'm always, I'm I'm naturally a very loud person and I'm always uncertain how loud I am with the mask on. So I, I tend to speak too quietly because I don't want to be too loud, but then I, you know, have the, ma- the mask on as well. So just like, it's muffly and confused. And I said something and he thought I said venti something and he was just like, this isn't Starbucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> go away. <laughs> um, and then I was like, ah, oh, okay. I'm um, sorry. I meant like a, a note cappuccino. And then I sort of made some comment about, um, can you put some like whipped cream on top and some, and he was like, um, 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 I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm making a bad joke. It's fine. <laughs> just like, yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't make friends or influence people as it turns out. This Everybody was just slightly you know, like, more uncomfortable. <laughs> well, what does this woman woman run, want from me? <laughs> just trying to do my job and yeah. this person thinks she's funny and it's actually <laughs> harassment now. Yeah, imagine mm. like you wor- you're working this job and every second person who comes in tries to be funny and clever. I wasn't I, w- I mean I was trying to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are funny and clever, but you have you have to imagine you're like the twentieth perth- person that day that comes in and tries to be funny and clever. That's that's just really hard to endure. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm in the UK now, so they do sort of smile and nod. In Germany, they just wouldn't. I, I think there's a difference in the customer service here, where yeah, you do have those interactions with people. Um, Especially in Berlin, they would be rude. Especially yeah, when yeah. it's like people from outside of Berlin starting a, a business here, and then they're like, "Oh, I heard in Berlin they're rude," and then just like incredibly bad <laughs> rude people to you when you're ordering. Um, as that was really common in the coffee shops, right? And it was yeah. like it was always Australians. It's like I can tell from your accent that you're Australian, and you're trying to be Berliner, like to have this attitude, but they're cool, and you're just rude now. This is yeah. somehow making a yeah. <laughs> I think like you always say that every person should like should leave their home country and live abroad for a while to sort of develop themselves and I agree this is this is a good thing but I also think everybody should work in retail or service industry for a bit yeah I think that's just to like to to humble themselves and to f- realize how annoying it is to to work in such a job. I I, I have think like, that's a well expe- accepted thing. Like this has been said by many people that you should all have to work in the service I industry. I thought it was my original idea, Tegan. Oh, sorry. It's, I thought it's it was, I came up idea. with a profound <laughs> you discovered it <laughs> piece of wisdom, and yeah, I probably just stole it from from the internet somewhere. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast <laughs> where we talk about plants and the things that they're doing while we're watching them, and sometimes when we're not. My name is Tegan. Hello, I'm Joram. And today we're going to talk about plants as they relate to fungi, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, today it's it's the, the plant show that doesn't really talk about plants, although we have, I think we, we look at the plant angle of fungi. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we... we have a plant book club, we might have mentioned it before on this podcast. So we've got a podcast where we talk about books that we've read that are somehow related to plants. We do this with our sort of friends and co-host Ellen Earhart, who has the Plant Crimes 
um, podcast and also our other friends, Melissa and Judith, who come from Flora L Design. And every couple of months we read a book about plants and then we talk about it together. Um, you can find that on all of your favorite podcatchers if you're not listening to it yet. And last, last month we sort of gave up a little bit from the plant topic and, and went to a book about funky instead. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. It was the book um, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. And I don't know really what my expectations were when going into it, uh, but I was surprised how fascinating it was. And that's why we mm -hmm. talked already at length during the Plant Book Club episode that um, came out just now. So you can listen to that already. But today we want to sort of extend some of the ideas that we discussed there. Like you don't have to know what we talked about in the other episode, but we're taking this further now in sort of the molecular plant angle um, of stuff that inspired us in the book. And I think I will go first with the favorite plant that I picked from the book Entangled Life. Um, let me just play quickly some music, because why not? My favorite plant. My favorite plant this week is a small plant that lives in the Caribbean area, um, in northern and central uh, America and on the Car Caribbean islands. Um, and it's called the Voir uh, Voiria, uh, specifically Parasitica that I want to mention today, but it, it's, it's the entire genus of Voiria. Um, it's only like a handful of species that are in this, um, in this genus. Mm -hmm. And these plants are exciting because um, they... They, first of all, they live in the leaf litter and they're fairly small and it can give you already an idea why, what makes them special uh, because they, they are also not green and they're living in decaying plant material. So what do they do? They don't do photosynthesis. Um, instead, they associate with fungi. They associate with mycorrhizal fungi uh, and sort of use them for their own good. So you just mentioned that the one you're focusing on is called Parasitica, is the mm -hmm. species name. But all of the plants in the genus are parasites? I think so. Um, I think all of them are, are non-photosynthetic uh, and they do, you like they live together with fungi uh, and take carbon from the fungi instead of making it on their own. We. Mm -hmm often have uh, relationships between plants and fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi are this uh, huge uh, area of study, uh, very important in crops, for example, because the fungi can take minerals and other nutrients from the soil and make them available for the plant. And the plant often sort of pays for it in, in terms of carbon by uh, giving sugars to the fungus that the plant makes from sunlight. And so the relationship between fungi and plants is most of the time one that's sort of at eye level. The plant gives something, the fungus gives something, the specifics, and we can talk about this a little bit later, like they vary a lot. Sometimes it's really a sort of a trade, sometimes it's more diffusion, sometimes it's parasitic, uh, but uh, very often there's one, one partner gives something and gets something in return. But mm -hmm. not for Voiria. This one is a parasite. Uh, it sort of grows its roots in a nest shape. And I, I read it's like, it looks like a little bird's nest. And inside that bird's nest, it holds a fungus, sort of captive. Uh, and okay. I wanted, it's like farming. It has like its own little fungus there. And this fungus breaks down the leaf litter and other materials, um, gets carbon from that. And then the plants uh, 
takes that carbon from the fungus without giving anything back in return. Um, so they're a true parasite to to the fungus. And it's this, kind of giving it a nice little snuggly environment. Maybe, yeah. maybe the fungi likes that. Yeah, I mean, that could be. That's, I, actually, I didn't read anything about potential trade-offs that the fungus gets from it. It could, it could be that the plant, for example, retains moisture a little bit better than the rest of the leaf litter, so it's like a good environment for the fungus to grow. Um, and also, just just from, from when we read about this in the book, I had kind of thought that the fungi itself was connecting up to other plants and stealing the carbon from those plants, but you're saying that it doesn't have to be doing that. It can be, you know, things except for the parasite and just... Yeah, I, as as far as I read, like I in, in the book, it's true. In the book, um, they mention that the, the fungus are, is often part of a network. You don't have just a relationship one to one between one plant and one entity of fungus. Uh, the fungus is usually networked between many plants, and so it could be that it's just funneling carbon from from other plants. Um, but I think it's also specifically like from the decaying leaf litter that the mm-hmm. fungus uh, gets the carbon. And provides it to this to this plant. Although I mean, you're right. I, I don't know exactly like the the um, the carbon trade. Um, usually, a scientist would then spike in some like radioactive carbon and measure where it ends up, and then give the carbon to the plants with like with uh, radioactive carbon dioxide and then see if the plants take it up or put it in the leaf litter and see if the fungus takes it up. And I haven't read anything like that. I tried to look on Google Scholar for for papers about this and a lot of them are just describing the plant. Yeah, I think so. Like like fungi, can they can be sort of symbiotic with the plant and, and do this trading or they can be like saprophytic, which is like they're they're breaking down the, the, the leaf litter. But I don't know if that's an either or clearly or if they Mm -hmm. can sort of switch between and i also don't know the ratios i mean i know i think 90 percent of land plants are associated with fungi they've got these mycorrhizal relationships um there's or there's some like association with fungi but i don't know what it's like from other side from from fungi yeah and this is sort of part of this wood wide web uh concept it's I think we talked about this in, on the show already, and it's very, uh, very common in popular science literature. This idea that there is this big network of fungus spreading from plant to plant or tree to tree, and mm-hmm. there's all sorts of trading and molecular transport going on. Uh, carbon coming from, from the plants, nutrients coming from the soil, maybe some bacteria are fixing some nitrogen somewhere, and that also ends up in a network, and then it can go through the network um, and be traded between the different players uh and this is also like extensively discussed in in the book and i find this this is a a concept that um i really like to think about because the question is always who is like how active is the process is that something Mm. where it's like actively traded where on a molecular level per unit of carbon that comes in a set amount of phosphorus is given back um, or is that diffusion is this just concentration gradients there's a lot of sugar in the plant root and some of it makes its way into the into the hyphae so the structures from the fungus and then gets transported in the fungal network and then you get another concentration gradient and then it ends up somewhere else yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of research into this, sort of looking at who's controlling these, like, just the formation of the relationships and then under what conditions and, you know, who's got the control and, and who's choosing what to trade in when. But I think even in the book, there was something that came up that was saying that, like, a sort of a single fungal entity could be interacting with different plants. And 
it could um, change the exchange rate. So imagine the fungi is exchanging like the phosphate, like phosphorus that it has with carbon from the plants. And depending on how desperate there is the plant, it might charge a different rate. So it'd be like, okay, you've got to hand over like five of your carbons for each of the, the phosphorus units I give you. Different plant might have like a, be- a worse exchange rate. And they were saying that the there seems to be this movement where the fungi moves its wares towards where it gets a better exchange mm-hmm. rate. So it's actually sort of doing some wheeling and dealing. And mm-hmm. But again, you don't know how much that's based on, you know, active stuff as a just sort of passive gradients and then the whole question of intent and you know i mean this becomes a, a very philosophical question as well which always comes up in these popular science books i yeah. think but i think i really enjoyed in in the book and also now to discuss what what's what's going on there or i don't know i in, in my mind i always want to break up the concept that there is an active um, trade going on uh, similar to how humans would trade uh, be it an altruistic trade or a socialist trade or a market capitalism trade which is all things that people have written about these networks um, how they how mm-hmm. they function uh, and to me I always just think of them like on a much more mechanistical level on a, on a sort of passive level it's like a computer system that you set up it's a computer system doesn't have intent you have inputs and outputs and then things that happen with it on the uh, in between and um so i i think personally without any like scientific backup for it because i think there isn't any yet um i think this is is a system where you mostly work it on concentration gradients you're on team computer yeah team no intention no consciousness, no um, decision-making above a, a very basic level. I mean, but surely the basic level of decision-making is at least, like, my aim is for me to survive as well as possible. Like, yeah. survival of myself and my my offspring, that's that's my ultimate aim. But even and that, then, I think, is, is a passive decision-making. I think this is sure. like in, in evolution, where the the branch of the of the hyphae of the mycelial network that take the bad decision by running the wrong molecular processes they just die off and then mm-hmm. you sort of you get a decision made by just having the one with the correct decision surviving but it's not that it really took an equal decision it sort of does both things and just one thing survives and one thing sort of makes it further and then this is the the stuff that's reinforced uh, and this, this is my 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 idea of these how these um, mycorrhizal networks work. But then these decisions move backwards and get encoded in the genes, right? I mean, it's like okay, you say yeah. yeah, it goes out and then it just dies when it doesn't succeed. But you know, there were some of them which stopped trying, like they gave up faster and they didn't die. They retracted instead. They pulled the resources back instead yeah. of like wasting the resources. And then maybe those ones have a genetic. You know, there's there's these things as well, which then becomes. Mm-hmm. What is a decision, Yoram? Like this is a philosophical question. <laughs> what, yes. is it, what is instinct and what is choice? And anyway, um, back to this plant. <laughs> so you said it doesn't it doesn't photosynthesize. So I'm yeah. going to assume it's not green. No, it's not green, but it makes flowers, um, mm-hmm. white or bluish flowers that then are visited by pollinators. And there are often they're quite numerous the flowers, but they might be very hard to spot. I think in the book he describes that he has to sort of go deep. Uh, at 
the ground level and rummage through the leaf litter and trying to find all of these plants because he, for his research he was counting them he was estimating how many of them are there in any given area so he had to pretty much find all of them and that was not easy to do even though they are not rare plants but they're small and hard to spot and i've seen some images online um from catalogs of these plants and they're really there's like a person pointing at it in an arrow and i can still i can't make <laughs> out what exactly is the plant in that picture because it mm. just looks like a lot of leaf material and because it's not green it's not standing out you can't be you can't say oh look there is the green plant that i'm looking for it's just plant tissue you've trained dead. on the wrong thing but maybe also you have the wrong visuals isn't i mean you said blue flowers didn't we learn that blue flowers is is good for bees don't bees like blue i think so i think it was some research with um like with with accession lines between yellow and blue flowers and the blue flowers were preferentially visited by bees i think and yellow by other insects but don't quote me on that <laughs> uh yeah apart from that there's not that much to learn online yet about this this plant a lot of it is just the catalogs uh, of voyeur species uh, the, and places where you can find them but on the biological level there is not that much that we already have understood around them but they are to me a nice entryway into the relationship between fungi and plants and how plants can take advantage of the fungus which I think is a really good place to start talking about our scientist of the week. Diversity in the plants. Science. So today I am doing the one, the only, who always comes up in these kind of po popular science books and has captured the imagination of, you know, at least thousands, maybe millions, who knows. So it's <laughs> Suzanne Simard, um, which I'm sure, Yoram, you recognize her name. Sure, I do. <laughs> so just as a brief um, background, Simad is still alive. She's a scientist who, um, she's Canadian originally, and she received her PhD sort of in Oregon State University, so up there in North America. And she's really famous in this topic of interactions between trees and fungi um, specifically, because way back in 1997, she had a paper which was called Net Transfer of Carbon Between Ectomycorrhizal Tree Species in the Field. So tree species that have these um, fungal symbionts um, associated with them. And that made the cover of the Nature magazine that year. And on the cover, they described that as the wood wide web, which is mm. this concept that Yoram has been talking about. So the fact that in the woods, the trees themselves are connected by the web. The web is sort of these fungi. So when we're thinking fungi here, it's not like a mushroom, sort of a fruiting body that looks like something you'd eat. It's these little tubes, very um, sort of spider silk running underneath the ground and connecting all of the different trees. And it had been shown already at this time in the lab that you could transfer carbon, also nitrogen and phosphorus um, sort of through fungi. That was possible, it had been shown in the lab, but she was the first person to show that it was happening in the field and by um, directionally and that also there can be sort of this net loss or net gain so a transfer from one to another and she showed it also between two different species of trees so it was Betulia papyrifera um, it's a birch tree 
Um, and also the other one was uh, Pseudotsuga menziesii, which I think is a fir tree. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't so, know. Like I'm, I'm agreeing with you based on your knowledge, not mine. <laughs> okay, it's a Douglas fir and it is a paper birch. So both quite common um, trees in North America. I, I sometimes think, <laughs> you know, scientific names, it's supposed to be that you don't have problems with, you know, it, it stops there being duplication if, if we both call this a paper birch. But the way we pronounce the scientific names is so terrible that it's actually creating, <laughs> at this stage, it's more confusion. Um, yeah. Let's be honest. So in the paper, they used basically isotopes so they could label radioactively um, the carbon to show that there was the movement from one plant into the other plant um and they did it like from both directions so reciprocal labeling and mm -hmm. showing that this transfer was happening and this has sort of started an, an entire huge rush of research looking at how these transfers are happening as we mentioned like who's controlling it in which direction it's going how the relations work and i think you you sort of touched on it a little bit before it's a really fascinating topic. It, it really drives a lot of interest, but there's also some weird stuff going on as far mm -hmm. as like the language that's used around there. So Susanna herself, she's very into science communication. That's one of her passions. And she's really wants to promote this idea that people see plants as sort of more intellectual and having these capabilities. And she uses very evocative imagery. So she talks about the fact that there are these larger trees, which are sort of, the central hubs um they're very productive and producing a lot of carbon they can photosynthesize very well so these bigger for example douglas firs can then provide carbon via these wood wide webs to little baby firs um so she described this as being a mother tree and that the mother is sort of protecting its babies um by exchanging mm -hmm. sugar and bas yeah, basically feeding the babies and almost giving this sort of like nutrients from their own body, which is very evocative of like, you know, something being in the uterus or breastfeeding or, you know, yolk or like it's got that very animal imagery of resources from the mother going to the child. And she now has a book that's called Finding the Mother Tree, which is basically sort of on this topic of the research that she's been doing for a long time. And there has been, I think, Yoram, you discussed this in one of our previous episodes, that there's been some discussion backwards and forwards about how this works as a thing. So Scientific American published in 2021 something called, uh, like sort of an interview or a discussion about her work, which is titled Mother Trees are Intelligent, They Learn and Remember. And that really comes from this point of view of, you know, using this imagery and discussing why this work's important um which is cool it's it is good for plant research as far as it's definitely made more people interested in plants and trees but then also like two years uh, two months later sorry there was a publication also in scientific american an opinion piece which was saying the idea is that trees talk to cooperate is misleading that's the title and the tagline is it's a romantic notion but pretending they're like humans could actually harm the course of conservation so there's this kind of camp on the other side that is arguing that using these kind of similarities to human as humans as a way to evoke emotion is problematic um and also often oversimplifies things so i think we'll get to this a little bit later on your own you're going to discuss this but you can say, oh, it's really cool because this 
this mother is sharing with its baby furs. But if those were two different species, you'd be like, well, are, are they sharing or is that just a parasitic plant? Like the flowers that Yarm just just mentioned, is that just that's just a, a thief? So why have we chosen that this is a mother and a child? And in the other case, we'd call this like a, a parasite. And yeah, this is this part of the discussion. And also, anyway, very often, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt here. Uh, very often, the, the trees, the young trees that grow around a mother tree, they are suffering from the mother tree because the mother tree's canopy is taking away all of the light. So the small trees, they can only actually grow when the mother tree dies and there's finally light mm -hmm. available in the canopy. And then sort of the fastest of the younger trees can then close the gap in the canopy again and get the light. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this language of, uh, of anthropomorphizing trees and or plants in general and making them sound as if they have human emotions and want to care for their offspring the way humans or high, like animals care for their babies um, because it's 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 very different in my opinion uh, mm -hmm. the, the entire idea of communication from plant to plant with intent is also something where and it's also discussed in entangled life that it's really hard to say whether or not a tree that emits a volatile chemical to signal something is doing that for other trees or for other parts of itself that mm -hmm. it gets nibbled on on one end and then emits the volatile to reach the other end of the tree because it doesn't have a central nervous system it can't just go from like branch a to branch f or maybe i mean the other argument is maybe it's not it's screaming it's just like a byproduct of the yeah. the the defense reaction, you know, or the matching, not, not screaming. Screaming in itself is already adding too much yeah, to exactly. human emotion. But like, it's just you know something munches, and then a second, like something gets yeah expressed as a byproduct. It's, it's you know it's always hard to tell. And other plants are listening in, not by actively listening in, trying to get the message, but just by having the same receptors available. And but I mean, this is like this is this is always the problem we have with any sort of biological, like any research. You should never ask the question why, right? I mean, you should yeah. always ask the question why because ultimately that's what we care about. That's what this is why we do science because we want to know why. We, we're asking, you know, those big why questions we've been asking since we were like two years old. But ultimately, when it comes to the way things work, biologically asking the question, you know, there is no why. It is because it is because it's an advantage. But, yeah. you know, you get into all these kind of weird philosophical places that we don't necessarily need to go to. Yeah. In any case, like regardless on your stance on the the mode of communication, it's like undoubtedly Sudan's work has had a huge impact, not just on the scientific community, but also outside it. So mm -hmm. apart from, you know, she's got this, this book that's just come out last year. I'm sure that will be quite popular. But we've read maybe 10 popular science books on plant subjects. She's been mentioned in every single one of them. This, this wood wide web comes up all the time. Um, with sometimes varying degrees of, of science attached to it, but it is a really like scientifically very important concept. And it also does have that connection to the public. And this can also be seen like, I mean, there's ideas in, in Avatar, this, this movie by James Cameron, which have this similar kind of, there's a mother tree which has connections and mm -hmm. this is linking to this. Um, and apparently inspired by this, I'm not sure about like, she has also a Ted talk that's got, you know, over a million views. This is something where, it is a really cool topic that goes beyond plant science nerds. So I think there's 
there's a lot there's a lot of scientific value here but there's also a lot of value for connecting with people mm-hmm. that has come from this um that's really really incredible and just makes her work extra special right yeah and i think this ties in into the the bias that i want to talk about uh that changes our perception of the world and she's part of changing that perception let's talk 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 about bias bias yeah so coming from from somebody who brought a lot of attention to the wood wide web to a bias that relates to that and it's also taken straight from entangled life um this is something that we definitely are uh not not to blame for but that we uh, a bias that we've fell uh that we fell into is that the way you would phrase it uh it's the idea we, we talked a lot about plant blindness in the past the idea that we uh mm-hmm. it's in general we just take plants for granted we can't really we don't perceive them as individuals when we go outside even though we're surrounded by plants they just blend into the background literally so we never think about apart from us plant science nerds we don't often think about plants. We just accept that they're there, that they're feeding us, that they're providing oxygen. And in Entangled Life, Merlin Sheldrake makes the point that similar to plant blindness, there's a fungal blindness that we don't think about fungi, even though they are everywhere surround, uh, surrounding us. It's not even like similar plants. It's like, it's like the next level. It's like, oh, yeah. you think you're so cool because you've noticed the plants. Well, guess what? You're still ignoring. <laughs> you're still biased. In fact, maybe you're even worse. You're ignoring the fungi that are helping to power these plants. Yeah. And the book Entangled Life is a great way to combat that fungal blindness. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I just want to mention a couple of the things, and maybe you have some others in mind, uh, of places where fungi are extremely important of course we talked already about mycorrhiza uh, uh, mycorrhiza so the relationship between fungi and plants i think one of the things to me that i have to remind myself that's actually fungi at play is when it comes to drinks and food all of the alcoholic beverages we have or stuff like vinegar citric acid uh bread all of that is made by fungi. Um, yeasts are mm-hmm. also a type of fungus. Um, so we have them everywhere in our food. Um, when it's not made by bacteria like cheese, then it's usually made by some fungi. And then like with yeast itself being used as kind of a small biofactory where we're also making, you know, extra chemical products yeah. with those yeasts. Yeah. We use them in in medical research and also medical production. Um, We use yeasts to to make all sorts of drugs. Um, We use them in technical applications, as I said, like citric acid and some other simple organic molecules are produced large scale um, by by fungi. Uh, Penicillium, for example, an antibiotic, very, very famous uh, penicillin. It comes from the penicillium fungus. Uh, And these are all things that we... I think the, the, the penicillin, penicillin story, this is a bit more well-known, but a lot of ant- uh, antibiotics are actually found in fungi because they evolutionary are important to fungi to control the bacteria around them. So they make some compounds that are great at killing off bacteria. And so for now many decades, researchers are looking into fungi to find new molecules that could kill bacteria. I think I think to me, the bigger part of this was not just the fact that they are all around and that's actually i think the introduction to the book is 
fungi are not only all around you, but also inside you, you know, they're everywhere, which was just a great way of of starting. But it's also this story that links to the wood wide web of one tree donating to the other tree. And if you look at it from the plant point of view, you say, well, either once one of the smaller tree is is basically stealing, is being a parasite and stealing from the bigger tree. That's way mm-hmm. to, one way to look at it. Or you could say it from the other side where you say, oh, well, that big mother tree is being very generous and nurturing its its daughter trees. It's another way of looking at it. But both of those ways of looking at it are plant-based ways of looking mm-hmm. at it. And Bookie says, well, you know, if, if you're looking at it from the fungi's point of view, that fungi is getting, is getting resources from both of those plants. And if one of those plants is struggling and sick, usually the smaller one, because as Yara mentioned, it, it can't get light because the mother tree is blocking all of the light and it can't photosynthesize very well. It's in the fungus's best interests to steal from the richer one to give to the poor so that it can continue to have the potential for a longer life and diversified access to mm-hmm. different resources um, throughout its life. So it's, you know, it's really different when you switch to this yeah. non-micro-blind point of view. Yeah, it's it's the fungus that keeps the stuff running and that holds all the threads and controls is here and I, now I'm falling into the same trap that I had a problem with before <laughs> where I'm giving human properties the to the fungus <laughs> on, on a molecular level it has a, a gateway function of keeping a population of plants alive or just by its sort of secondary effects of its action of its growth are the survival of these plants uh, and yeah often we we think that the, the fungi are just there as passive stuff in the ground and the plants are clever enough to take advantage of them when this is a is a biased and uh, sort of um, flawed way of looking at this ecosystem because you, you're not looking at the entirety, you're just looking at it from one player's point of view and that might give you wrong ideas about how stuff works. This is where the fun I think I've decided I'm going to make this section this time less fun and more like fun in the way your your teacher in eighth grade is like, hey, we're going to have a pop quiz. How fun. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought you went in the direction of I'm not going to make this section fun. I'm rather making it fungi. No. no. <laughs> um... <laughs> No, I just wanted to to comment on some of the cool uh, some of the other cool facts from the book. I was focusing on the ones that were related to plants specifically, um, mm-hmm. er, because I wanted to try to make sure that our audience didn't all get uninterested in plants and pledge their allegiance to fungi and thus leave <laughs> us in search of a better podcast where they talk about mushrooms. Um, yeah. So the first the first thing I I wanted to ask Yoram Yoram, having read the book. Yeah, and and having also as you do an extensive knowledge of plants, how many species of plants would you say there are in the world in total? Oh, uh, I, I I recently <laughs> read it. I recently read the number, but I I have no idea anymore. I think I think we have. I I mean I have to I have to guess now. I say two point five million species. 
Whoa, you might be thinking about fungi instead of plants, actually. <laughs> so that was <laughs> that was one of the early facts in the book where I was like, no, this can't be true. Um, you mentioned that there's 2.2 to 3.8 million species of fungi thought to be in the world. I think at the moment, like 96% of them are yet to be discovered. So we don't know many fungi, but it's predicted that we have that many in the world. Um, and he also mentions that there was six to 10 times more fungi then they're up our plants, at which point I was like, how rude, how dare he? This is absolutely bullcrap. And then went to try to research facts to find out if there were more plants than actually he believed. And I, you know, I was doing some, some very basic research and I found out that there is about 300 different species of flowering plants, so angiosperms, known. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, that's pretty reassuring. Like... There's already 300,000. So, you know, he said one-tenth the amount of plants. So that would already be one-tenth. You know, if you've got three million fungi and you've got 300,000 flowering plants, I was like, cool. We must be way more because just with the angiosperms alone, 300,000. But isn't this like five gymnosperm species in total? Yeah, that's that might be where we hit the problem. <laughs> so as it turns out, angiosperms make up about 90% at least of all of the plants and we're not just including gymnosperms we're also including algae 44,000 liverworts less than 10,000 mosses 12,000 lycopods 1,000 ferns 10,000 doing okay gymnosperms only 1,000 so like basically angiosperms as we know have dominated hard yes. um since since the expansion so it really is it looks like we're probably around 390,000 plant species in total and that's being quite generous with what we're including in the plants mm -hmm. and then i was like well you know plant plants i mean what what is a plant even so this you're is, taking cyanobacteria you know, now as well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, this <laughs> had an algae friend who was always like, well, you know, algae are not plants, but plants are algae. So really, if you think about plants as a kingdom, it's it's the algae kingdom, right? Like, that's the, the big group. <laughs> so then I got into this long Wikipedia rabbit hole where I was looking at how many different kingdoms of life there are. Because I was like, well, you know, fungi is a whole kingdom. So it's unfair to, to con like compare this whole kingdom of fungi to just our little plant friends. Um how many kingdoms of life do you think there are, Yarm? Didn't you just say it? It's six? No. Did I say six? I don't know if you said it. Maybe I heard it. I selectively heard six. Um, I, let me get it. Like There's there is bacteria, there's archae, there's fungi, there's plantae, and then there is whatever they call the animal king kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, did I forget something there? Maybe protozoa could be so this kind yeah. of like... Unicellular, a bunch weird. of random extra. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a kind of a vague. It's like amoeba and stuff, right? Turns out it's been, you know, how many kingdoms there are has changed quite often historically. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I remembered when it was six. <laughs> I think I think in in school we learned as six. To be fair, and I think even now there's some. I think I saw a, a quote from a paper from like 2010 or 2015, even so quite recently, where they were like. Mm, this is all a bit made up like especially protozoa we do not know what's going like we do not know what's happening there that doesn't seem right but people don't really 
you know. <laughs> yeah, there'd be, de- there'd be dragons. I mean, this is kind of a recurring theme of the podcast. As it turns out, whenever humans try to classify crap, we just realize that nature <laughs> yes. does not fit into nice little linear, binary, whatever, <laughs> like divided sections of X, Y, Z. Um, yeah. It gets blurry. But that would that would actually be <laughs> my point to debunk the, the number for the fungi, because fungi, and I think that's also mentioned in the book later on, the label species doesn't really apply to fungi. They are such a weird group of organisms with, with they, they fuse together and they can branch off and it's really hard to tell where one individual ends and where one species ends and when you sequence them, you can get all kinds of overlaid uh, DNA readings. So it's mm-hmm. really hard to very narrowly decide that this chunk of hyphae of mycelium that you have that this is one distinct closed species and the thing that you have like next to it that has slightly mutated is that the same species or not because it's a it's much more of a continuum so i would say counting all of the fungal species is a useless task and we do this because we have we have um, the carlinius system of naming species but for fungi it's much less applicable and therefore comparing the number of plant species to the number of fungal species it's just it's it's like counting like how many berries you have compared to giving like a distinct number to how much water you have without measuring its volume just saying like i have seven water and it's like yeah water can't be counted so stop (laughs) trying to compare how much water you have to the berries by using the same countable system and this is something you learn when you learn language, right? It's like the difference between having many and having much. Yeah. Like you have a you lot have much of water. Fungi, you have many plants. <laughs> okay. I mean, again, everything gets complicated when we start going. I mean, also with plants, you can say at what point does a species end and is it a subspecies or just a cultivar? Like how much difference? Even if you're like looking exactly at the DNA, you have all the DNA, you know, yeah, yeah. comparing what, what the What is codes. an accession? What is a species? Yeah, and the old-fashioned terms are like you can make an offspring from them. They can they can reproduce in the wild and create fertile offspring. Doesn't always apply for plants. Yeah. It's it's They're all incompatible a bit. accessions that you can't breed together and stuff like that. Same chaos, man. Um, <laughs> and then like so, even in the plants, and I was looking at you know, I'm not going to f- compare this whole kingdom of fungi to like my poor little plant <laughs> classification. So, like, also, if you think what plants, what plantae is, there's plantae sensu amplo. Can you guess what that is? Sensu amplo. Like, and, um, no, no idea. I can't make sense got, of any of the syllables. Like the, in the ample sense of the, the word of plantae. So, like, we're being very generous with what we're considering a plant. What would you put in that group? Like, um, uh, the red algae and things that are non-green but photosynthesizing and you Be a bit more generous? A bit more ample. <laughs> um, uh, non-vascular plants, things like mosses and and all of this stuff? No, I think you're thinking too narrow. Okay, let's, let's, yeah. start, let's start at the start. Let's, let's start at the top and go back. So we have... <laughs> Back in biology 101 here. (laughs) Plantes, I mean, it's Wikipedia 101. Let's be realistic about how much I've researched this. So there's plantae in the sensu stricto. And I'm sorry about the way I'm saying Latin with an Australian accent, but (laughs) Um, 
So plants in the strict sense, that's like plants, but also green algae. Um, yeah. So viridi plantae, basically everything that has cellulose, cell wall, chlorophyll, plants and green algae, quite easy. Then we can go to plantae sensu strictissimo. <laughs> Which is, as you can imagine, a bit stricter than strict. (laughs) Now we're throwing out the algae. So we can still have like the, you know, mosses, hornworts, so like the vascular and non-vascular plants, as well as like extant plant species, but the algae are out of the strictissimo sense. But stricto still has, (laughs) stricti, still has (laughs) the algae in it. And then you have um, sensu lato. I'm not really sure what lato means in Latin. Somebody please call us and shout at me. Sure. So the milkier, you know, it's a bit more opaque like milk. That's where that word actually um, originates from, according to Yoram. And that includes not only the green algae, but also the red algae. So we are a bit broader. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we're going back to that, the broader sense, the the ample sense, sensu amplo. What's happening here? We've got the red algae, the green algae, the mosses, the hornworts, the liverworts, the angiosperms, the gymnosperms. Everyone's in. You have a plant. You have a plant. Everybody has a plant. What else are we getting in there? The parasitic plants that don't photosynthesize. It's those not, are still plants. You're yeah, on. They would fit into strictissimo, let's those. be honest. Yeah. Even though they You can't throw them out just because they're not green. Oh, no, no. I feel like in a pop quiz, really. I <laughs> don't know what else can be, apart from cyanobacteria, but they're bacteria. You find them in a bacterial kingdom and not in a plant kingdom. Otherwise, it would, would make sense, would it? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense. Um, we're going back in time a little bit as well. So again, what what looks like a plant walks like a plant, quacks like a plant, but is definitely not a plant. Um, fungi with photosynthesis. No, I don't know. I really don't. It's fungi. It's just all fungi. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there for Marilyn, the author of this book, that in the sensu amplo of the word plants, there are more plants than fungi, because sensu amplo apparently also includes fungi and all plants <laughs> and also all the algae and basically probably everything else you know like a green piece of paper on the floor sure why not like a hat sure let's shove that into the ample sense of the you know it's not eating food therefore it's probably a plant <laughs> all great yeah i mean basically this just shows that classification has been a mess for a long time and probably yeah. will remain a mess for an I- even longer time i guess I recently gave a talk to some students and one of the first things that I said there was, look, I will say from time to time during this talk that all of something does something or that it's always this case, but we are in biology. So whatever statement comes with all the time, there will be some weird exception somewhere. Some guy won't mm-hmm. do photosynthesis. Something will do its cell division differently. Something um, will treat DNA and RNA differently. You will always find mm-hmm. like some weirdo somewhere that just decided to go a completely different route. So whenever you try to make a generalist claim, and especially when classification, you try to make like general claims about what belongs together, um, you will always find things that just they just don't fit. And then that was to me very important in, to understand at one point in biology that. This is not clear cut. Whatever statement you do, even if it comes down to like the molecular level where you say respiration is a very basic process, you find that everywhere. And then somebody's mm-hmm. like, no, actually, we found a mistletoe that has like 
that's lacking an entire massive complex that everybody else has. Um, and needs to have to do respiration. And yeah, yeah he's just and like, they you know all what? die when Not they don't bother. have it. And we found the one that's like, oh, I actually don't need it. So um, I think that's also true for classification. It just it just doesn't work for everyone. I'm sorry, I have to let my cat out of the room because it's screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear it. Um, this segment was brought to you by my scream cat, who I'm now going to let out of the room. <laughs> My next fact is one of the fungi that caught my eye when reading Entangled Life. Um, because in the book, they say, uh, according to, to some piece of original writing about this species, that you can read a book by the light of this fungus. And I'm talking about uh, Panelus stipticus. And this is one of a couple of dozen species of fungi that are bioluminescent. Um, they actually shine a light and it's a uh, i can already give it away here this is one of the more common bioluminescent reactions do you know which one it is the one that's most of the time luciferase yes it's luciferase they have luciferase and um luciferine is a molecule that's then by um like changed (laughs) i actually don't know what the the enzyme does but the enzyme luciferase then takes the luciferine breaks it down and emits some light and that's visible by the naked this eye. Is, this is the one that's in fireflies, right? Yeah. I think that's the yeah the go-to reference. And so this this fungus, Panellus stipticus, um, has many different varieties. And mostly the strains from eastern North America are bioluminescent. Um, in from other areas, especially uh, European areas, for some reason it's not bioluminescent. Uh, and it's a very weak bioluminescence. You can see it in the dark in the forest. But from the pictures that I've seen, it doesn't seem to be bright enough to really be able to read a book by, um, unlike what's described in this original piece of, of literature about this fungus. Um, I've seen some pictures where they like they, they took a photo and it took them a 10-minute exposure to de- get them to glow nicely in the picture. Um, so it's really rather weak. And uh, it's, it's unclear why they do this. Um, they... They, some of them just do it in the fruiting bodies. This is what we usually call a mushroom. Um, but others also um, glow in the mycelium. So it can't just be um, the attraction of, of like pollinators. It's the wrong word here because they're not extracting pollen, but rather spores. So it's not that um, they're trying to get animals close by um, to load them with spores so they can um, carry Wait, the spores elsewhere. elsewhere. They're just doing. They're doing it in the mycelium. It's just like these little yeah. threads that are underground. They're yeah, of- the stuff that you usually don't see. And but at the same so time, like- it could also work there because it, there could be some animals that take a bite of the mycelium uh, and then have some mycelium attached to their bodies, and then they carry it elsewhere. And then the mushroom can grow again from the mycelium. It doesn't have to go through the sexual reproduction of spores. I mean, they also had a bit in the book about how fungi are basically hunting nematodes, these these worms that are everywhere underground. Um, and some of them were making sort of lassoes or nooses and others were producing little poisonous drops that the, the nematodes would eat and then become paralyzed. And then the fungi would grow into their mouth and down their throat and consume them from the inside out. So, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. maybe... <laughs> I, I'm completely making up things here, but maybe they're glowing to to lure in little hapless wormies. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea how their prey, like nematodes, if they are attracted by light or if they shy away from light. Um, 
I don't know enough about nothing, like these I nothing tiny about them. I think I've heard that they're most they're the most abundant animal in the world and I was like mildly I like I like annelids, I like segmented worms, but the idea of like Yeah. Nematodes, like creepy little earth like not nice earthworms, but like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I once bought a whole bag of like millions of nematodes to treat ants with. Apparently ants hate um nematodes and you can pour that over their nests and then the nematodes eat the ants. Or the ants run away from them. I think the, the the nematodes eat the the eggs of the ants, and then mm-hmm. the ants like yeah, move their brood elsewhere. They use as a biological control, like in the <laughs> greenhouse and stuff. They are they're, they're they're very useful. I mean, the problem is some nematodes are parasitic, which kind of gives them a bad rep. But like, they're not all bad. I just don't have any. It's really hard to get fond feelings. Like I can get fond feelings for an earthworm. Like I had an earthworm farm when I was a kid. I can get <laughs> fond feelings for a spider. I just. There's nothing about nematodes which makes me think, yeah, <laughs> yes. cool. It's also I you just can't think really like, see them. itchy worms. <laughs> these these worms, you buy them in a bag. It's 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 a um, opaque liquid, like a yeast solution. So you can't really. You know the, see the thing them. is, as a, as a kid, I had the that um, the Guinness Book of Records, and one of the pictures was somebody like winding out one of these like parasitic worms, like that was underneath their skin, and they were having to like wind it out on oh a my stick. God. And I, I don't know if that's an nematode, but I suspect it is. Um, and that just, ugh. yeah. These parasites, they they give me body horror. Um, but <laughs> and the idea that like they sometimes they like as you're trying to get rid of them, they're shedding their like butts, which have all the the eggs in them as well. Oh my, horrific. Yeah, please, yeah, please let's not talk you can about cut all these. of that. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Um, but coming back to the fungus. Um, the last thing that I really could find about this is that uh, some people try to use this as a tool in bioremediation. Another application of fungi in general is this mycoremediation. So taking the extraordinary ability of diversity in a fungal species that can break down all kinds of stuff. Um, we in a, in a plant book club we talked about the fungi fungus that can break down used diapers and grow on it. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of other things that are really hard to break down, such as lignin, for example, from um, cell walls in trees, um, that can only be broken down by fungi. And so some people try to use uh, Panellus stipticus and other fungi to break down human toxic waste that no other organism really likes to touch, and that's really toxic to the environment, and try to find some fungi that are great at growing on this stuff and be like hey finally some good food that nobody wants to eat i'm going to eat your nuclear waste um the fungi i want to mention from the book is a fungi that's pretending to be a plant so that's why i bring this up um just very quickly uh, they mention a fungi genus that's phycomyces and apparently the phyco actually comes from sort of like the fly like being plant-like so People originally saw it and thought it was a plant. I have personally looked at photographs of it and it looks kind of like blue, black and fungal to me. So whatever, make your own <laughs> life choices. They thought it was an algae. I think In it looks... ample sense of plants, as a sense of plants. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it's plant. It's amply a plant. So I think, I think what was getting them is it kind of grows quite straight up. So it's sort of a big strand, but then it has a little bit of a bobble on the end, which is sort of this um, big spore. It's a single, very large cell. And the other thing that makes it very plant-like is that it responds to light. Mm-hmm. So it can sense light and it can apparently sense insanely low light. So the reference that's given in the book is that it can detect light at levels as low as that provided by a single star. 
Mm-hmm. And then Merlin, the author, goes on to say that you would need hundreds of times more light to provoke a response in a plant. And I got offended for all plants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I did spend some time trying to chase up these references. And unfortunately, although the author gives really good references in the book, this link to a review and the review itself had the information without referencing where that information came from. <laughs> and it looks like Phycomyces is this really cool genus. There was like a lot of people interested in it around, I think, the 1950s. Um, because it had these light sensing abilities and it could do some other cool things. It can like produce carotene, so like um yeah, the colour of carrots basically, um, pigments. People were really interested in it, but then they couldn't transform it. They couldn't actually mm-hmm. modify the DNA. Um it was just didn't want to do it, so it looks like things sort of trailed off. So I had some problems with tracing yeah. and chasing the references. There's, there's some more modern work, but I couldn't find that information about the response to light and how that yeah, compared to I, I plants. Want to know, I really wanted to know. I want to know what is the response. In plants, you can measure then photosynthesis and say the plants see the light and they make a tiny little bit of sugar from it. So they realize that the light is there or they can very slightly move their leaves towards the light, stuff like that. In a fungus, I wonder what the reaction is that you can actually measure when you have a star's worth of light Hitting it's the, the most basic reaction. It's phototropism. They move towards the light. Okay. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's easy to so test. They have in like the a lab. very yeah faint light source in one direction, and they see that the these stalks with kind of the big cellular eye at the top they they move their eye in the direction of uh-huh. the light. Mm. Huh. So I I I do really want to do side by side experiments. This is something that fungi. I'm also after this book. I want to do stuff with fungi so much. I'm already thinking about: <laughs> is there any sensible way to do sort of at home experiments with fungi apart from just having some yeast growing? Um, but and without just saying, okay, it's the mold in my basement. <laughs> I'm analyzing now. I mean, also like this for me is particularly interesting. Like from from the point of view of my PhD. So I spent my PhD trying to make plants stay in the dark so that they would not respond to the light and then putting them in the light and then like quickly capturing the way they respond and the way they develop their ability to photosynthesize. And based on my experience, it was not that easy to make the plants not see the light. Like you, they could see light. I mean, maybe not from a single star, but I really, I mean, maybe the, the fungi is more responsive as far as the way it grows, but maybe plants are still responding to quite low levels of light with like their gene expression. And I, I don't know, I don't know what the levels are. Um, yeah i'm not sure <laughs> uh, i mean in fairness plants also they've developed parts like they've developed parts of their their leaves are to protect them from getting too much light you know they have things that yeah they're sort of sunscreens built in and so you have to first overcome the sunscreen a little bit and also the fungus i imagine it's growing underground um so i mean it has these protruding bits that come out well, but this they is might the still fruiting be bodies yeah this is kind of like the but they still might be covered by leaves or other stuff so for them seeing the faintest bit of light it might not mean mean that they look out for the stars at night they just they don't need much to wiggle their way through some sort of stuff that's lying on the ground that they can actually reach the light then yeah this these species um these fungi also have something we've talked about in plants before where they apparently change the way they grow depending on 
what's nearby them. So they sort of avoid growing too close to other species. But it seems like they specifically avoid growing next to their kin. So they will like not care if it's other species not related to them but if it's sort of closely related species they they get out of the way um Mm -hmm. which again is this whole like are they cooperating with their friends um kind of conversation (laughs) but yeah it's a very conscious decision so i will give those like five or six out of ten because they are plant-like and sensing light off a few points because they think they can do it better than the plants and also off a few points because we can't transform them as far as i can tell so (laughs) yeah Hmm. (laughs) Uh, i think I have like two more general things that I found fascinating to think about fungi. And one thing is the mycelium that we talked about, uh, about already. There's only one last thing that I want to mention about it, um, that it's not a brain. Uh, some people try <laughs> to say like, look... Um, I mean, you've um, got to explain what it is then. You can't just say it's yeah, not a brain. Um, a brain... in. A brain works uh, with, it's a dense dynamic network with strong connections and weak connections between players. But in a brain, you have synapses and a very dedicated signal transmission in these synapses and you have inputs and outputs and it's it's much more complicated. And then in a fungal network, you also have uh, a dynamic shape, dynamically shaped network with strong links and weak links, but you don't have these synapses in there. You don't have sort of logic gates that that do this decision-making in an animal brain. Um, so... Although it's like in in the pop pop uh, popular science literature and also I think in some scientific literature people discuss the idea could a mycelium work similar to a brain in terms of decision making. Um, Merlin Sheldrake points out some research that indicates also some like thoughts that indicate that no they don't work like brains just because it's also a network of things and I just want to point that out here because for roots it's a similar thing for plant roots where people are like look at these plant roots they are a dynamic network you have big roots that connect uh Mm -hmm. to that sort of carry a lot of information and you have small roots and you have hair roots and maybe the brain of the plant sits in the roots this is literally something that well especially at the growing tip right the growing tip of the root and also the growing tip of the shoot yeah um that's something that we even read in i think peter volim's book uh, in in a plant book club they were um, discussing this idea that the root of uh, the, the brain of the plant sits in the roots because it's also a network like the brain, and I just want to point out no, it, no, it's not a brain. Um, a brain is much more complex, has very different specialized functionality. So um, while there there is some cleverness in a mycelial network, it's not like a brain. It's not that the entire ground is is a thinking brain. That makes decisions. I mean, you, you say that, but like, can a brain extract phosphorus from the soil by excreting enzymes? No, it can't. That's why. <laughs> well, not so clever then, is it? Yeah, but that's Who's just another reason for, <laughs> for not to compare the two, just because like they are both networks. Um, you could then also say um, the network of streets is a brain because you have big streets and small streets and they, they fuse and branch and therefore all of the street network is a brain. Anyway, I think I just, surely if, if I just wanted to point that out because it's something that um, often enough makes its way into popular science articles about networks, and whenever I read that, I'm always, I was no, this is this is 
probably not true. This is an oversimplification. This gives people the wrong idea. This gives people the idea that there's a when there's a brain, there's a consciousness, there's an intention, there's there's like a being with yeah, with a consciousness that um does stuff and that's the wrong way to think about fungi in my opinion. Sorry, that was it was more of a rant. It was more of a look people you're wrong when you say it's a brain, but I, to me it's important to point that out. <laughs> my ceiling we'll, is not a we'll brain. We'll be uploading photos of my keep ranting old man face. <laughs> I mean, this is a discussion that you and I have quite often, I think, and like that comes up in these books quite often and it's you know, it's a bit of a pet peeve of yours, I would say. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and I think also of Merlin Sheldrake's a little bit. He he spends some time discussing how we're always trying to put human labels on non-human things and limit our thinking by doing that. Well, I think I think actually he did it really well because he said yeah. sort of it doesn't Better really matter. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're very much like it's not a brain. Other people are like it is a brain because that helps people connect um, with concepts. And he's like, well, actually, it doesn't really matter. And in fact. Maybe the problem is if we keep on discussing about brains, it's it's distracting because yeah. language does mean something and it has those links. So, you know, in a way, everybody has the same intentions, but <laughs> just. <laughs> yes. um, I think we should move on to the final thing that we want to discuss, and both yeah. of you pulled this up. It's what happens when a plant meets a fungi, and we're not talking about a big plant. We're talking about a small plant, which is actually an algae. Yeah. Um. So algae plus fungi equals lichen. And what did you want to say about lichens? I think I find them fascinating. I always wanted to study them. Like when I was coming out of university for my bachelor, I was originally planning to do my my PhD or master's on these lichen or actually biocrusts that you find both in the deserts of Australia and in the like in Antarctica. So like in very extreme mm -hmm. extreme environments, just. Like the fact that lichens can kind of survive in these weird places is, is amazing. Um, to be honest, I didn't have too much of a clue what a lichen is for a long time. Um, at one point, I figured out, okay, these are the the combination of a photosynthetic algae together, growing together with a fungus growing inside one another. Uh, and I didn't even know the German word for a while. I, I just looked it up the other day and then I was ah, this is it. This, um, But even... Even the German word, I had no idea what it really is. I just knew it's in German, it's a flechte, and I know that they grow on surfaces and people use pressure washers to get rid of them. Um, <laughs> this was my the full extent of my knowledge, but then from the book, um, I learned so much more about the details and um, found it incredibly fascinating that, as, is, as you mentioned, you can bring sort of compatible algae and fungi together and they don't have to be able to form you don't have to already know that these are lichen-forming algae and fungi. They can just uh, they can just be compatible, but in nature, not that often hang hang uh, out together. And then they will form this spherical lichen, where the algae and the fungi grow together and grow into like its own special structure that's more than the sum of its two parts. Um, and, and this I definitely goes that. into that mythical discussion of. Where does the single entity end yeah. and where, do, you know, what is an entity? Is a lichen an entity or is it just an algae and uh, a fungi hanging out together? Yeah, because they can also together do much more than they can do individually. Uh, as you said, like they are these expert, lo uh, extreme loving or can be these extremophile um, organisms that, that grow on. I, I think in a book it's mentioned when. Uh, a, a volcano erupts in in the sea, and new islands, barren islands, are formed from the cooling lava. That uh, 
lichens are usually the first ones to set uh, set a foot there and, and get a hold there because the the fungi can help to break down minerals in the in the soil while the the algae can provide its first energy source from sunlight and then they can be able to slowly break up the rock and then when they die they provide organic matter that then like non-vascular plants or other plants can come and grow on and then very slowly turn dead rock into a living biosphere and i just think that's so cool to have this these pioneer organisms I have a few facts I would like to add. I like I like the the idea of lichenization. So, you know, things going towards lichen. We've talked about sort of this crabification, how how things form crabs, and this sort of lichenization. As it turns out, one in five fungi apparently they think one of one in five of the known fungi. I guess it's the four percent, not the ninety six percent we don't know about. <laughs> can can form lichen, so they're like really pro making a little lichen which i think makes sense they're getting yeah. free carbon i mean we all want everybody <laughs> loves sugars um and i like how the author described lichens as extroverted i think i would actually use the word gregarious which is like you know seeking out others and you know wanting to make friends they they really go into it um and then the other thing i, I really liked you know we discussed it's a lichen plus an uh, it's a fungi plus an algae that makes a lichen is that an, a single entity or not and then it's been quite recent that some researchers found out it's it's not it's not a fungi plus an algae, it's a fungi plus an algae plus almost always another fungi. So there's usually like a sort of yeah. single celled yeasty thing, and then often it's a fungi plus a lichen plus a fungi plus another fungi. So it it turns out that a lot of fungi just like to get in on the party. Yeah, I guess you know once they've got an algae there and they're getting free sugar, everybody's rocking up to the what an ice cream truck equivalent of whatever that is. <laughs> make a little noise and then there's also bacteria coming in there as well when they're mm. sequencing those they almost always find bacterial communities there and it's really hard to distinguish are they sort of just hitchhiking are they functionally involved in that um, mm. but they also play a role just like if you sequence a human all of the dna in a human you will find a lot of dna from bacteria in our guts and it's really hard to tell like, we need them. We can't digest our food without them. But are they part of us or not? Are they hitchhiking in our bodies or not? You have the same questions with lichen. Uh, and this, to me, really broke down the concept of individuals and species. There are these community growing together, and we try to classify this as a thing. But can we do that? Is it a thing? Because it, there are so many parts to it, and these parts can all change. And some of them are more constant than others, but... I'm starting to feel this whole episode is just us trying to bring you all along on the existential <laughs> crisis with us. Like, is it a brain? Is it not a brain? Or am I an individual? Am I a billion? Th I mean, who knows? <laughs> we hope you're now also confused. That's That's been the aim of the game. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, think I found it incredibly fascinating to think about all of these things, and I still... I'm in the process of making sense of it. So I just recommend everyone... I think what I want to convince everyone to do is to read the book. Um, and then afterwards, listen to the Plant Book Club and see if, if they agree with us or not. But this is what I want everybody to do. In fairness, we are, <laughs> we are a bit late on reading this book. I think it already has done the course last year sometime. So probably a lot of us people have already read this book. But if you haven't, <laughs> pick it up. It's yeah. worthwhile. I'm just assuming that everybody is a 
kid broken by the internet just like me who hasn't read a proper book in ages um so i'm just going from my own experience and extending that to everyone cat fact uh today i am bringing the cat fact and it was originally actually going to be a fact about crows but i think we're going to have that next week and instead i'm going to give another fact about fungi yay (laughs) i just there was one more thing i really loved about this book that we did not talk about enough in the book club because we were talking mainly about the book and about fungi um but so i want to mention again here so um, what I want to talk about today is, in fact, ants, um, which are related to, to the fungus. These are specifically the macrotermes ants. They live in West Africa and they make these huge, you know, termite mounds and they, they farm fungus. So they have a termitomyces fungi, ter- termite myces fungi, <laughs> I guess it's termite fungus termite fungus um and they they cultivate them inside their mounds so the mounds are sort of built to have ideal balanced conditions which the fungus likes to have and then yeah the the termites are actually they're they're farmers these ants which is really cool but apart from just being farmers they also have been used almost as weapons so there's stories of these ants being released on, into a military outpost of a colonizing French army. Um, the termites destroyed the building yeah. and the French had to leave. And then my favorite thing of all is that in some sort of myths of the region, these macrotermies ants are actually, they have sort of a holy or like a sort of a spiritual link where they are seen as messengers between humans and the gods. And if you have a hierarchy of organisms, the ants come above humans and i honestly really liked this because the ants they're breaking things down but they're also sort of helping build things and so they get a place in the universe because they are so important but it seems like that's not an that's not an animal that normally rocks up in mythology in in my myth like the mythology that i've sort of been you know crows i expect cats i expect ants i expect less and i think it's it's cool and impressive and it, it makes sense also like realistically if you if you saw these termite mounds i think you'd be like yeah there's something special going on there right it's more a tiny animal making such a big incredible thing this is yeah so we're, we're sort of magical. Ant, ant blind then we're also we're ant blind, blind <laughs> fungus blind and ant blind um yeah uh, working on it, trying to change it. But yeah, these termite mines, they're incredible also from an engineering perspective. I know they can always come up as um, as examples for a passive air conditioning system because they manage mm-hmm. to, independent of the outside temperatures, to maintain a fairly constant temperature inside by the way they can have air ducts. And there's actually buildings, human buildings, that are modeled after the way termite mounds work. And so they have air conditioning a passive air conditioning that does um, a majority of the air conditioning work and they only need a little bit of energy for some additional air conditioning um and it's a major like cost saving thing like something that architects learn from termites to make more sustainable buildings in in hot climates so yay go ants (laughs) go ants with this i think we're at the end of our show if you want to get in touch with us 
uh, you can reach out to us on social media on Twitter. You can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. At Plants and Pipettes is our tag on Facebook and Instagram, and there you can talk to me. We have a website that's uh, plantsandpipettes.com, where you find this podcast and stories. Okay, and in case you hadn't picked it up from our very strong hints throughout the episode, we also want you to be listening to our other podcast, which is called The Plant Book Club. Every couple of months, we read a book that's somehow related to the plant theme. We do it with some of our other friends, so it's not just Yoram and I talking all the time. And you can find <laughs> that on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Goodbye. Opening closing music was Caravana by Philip Gross. Ha, <laughs> ha,